0: Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast. where this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve talking to you. And again, the Diecast Movie Podcast is where the movie discussions are decided by the roll of a die. Also, we do interviews. And today, we're going to be doing an interview that I'll be starting in just a second with Brendan Faulkner. Just want to remind everybody that he is going to be at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention this September 7th through the 9th of 2023 at Hunt Valley Delta Marriott in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Um, you can go to midatlanticnostalgiaconvention.com to learn more information. He'll be there at his dealer booth. Also, there'll be a lot of other people there, celebrity-wise, that I talked to Martin Grams about who runs the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention in episode 176. So if you want to learn more about who's going to be there and about the convention and what it's about, listen to that episode. And Martin and I also talk about the James Bond movie, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So you get a two for one. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy the interview, which will be starting now. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Diecast Movie Podcast, where we either do movie discussions, where the genre of the movie is decided by the role of a die, or interviews. And today, we have an interview. I'm going to be interviewing... Brendan Faulkner. Mr. Faulkner was a zombie in Dawn of the Dead, the classic 1978 movie. Also, he was the director of Spookies and Killer Dead and besides other things. How you doing today, Mr. Faulkner? Are you told me to call you Brendan.
0: Brendan, yes. Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine.
1: And you and I have met a few times at a Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention where you're frequently there as one of the vendors.
0: Yes. And what, yes, what's that, that like? That's always, well, that's always been my, as they say, side hustle. I have been a dealer in vintage popular culture, actually, since the 60s, since I was a teenager. I find it more steady than film work, so uh, i always kept up with it.
1: If you're a fixture at the convention, and I know, looking at your table, you have a lot of Good stuff. I mean, if you, if you want to get some stuff, you, you want to get some nice memorabilia and things like that. Your your table air tables, I should say, or are the area, to, one of the areas to go to.
0: <laughs> well, I deal in all sorts of stuff. You know, all sorts of vintage books and movie memorabilia and things like that.
1: And you're still doing the circuit of different conventions and everything.
0: Well, now that they're starting to come back. I mean, with the pandemic there, everything just sort of grinded to a halt. Um, so now as they start to uh, come back, and probably over the last 20 years, I've found um, that a lot of the shows I have to travel to that really deal more in vintage material are further away. It used to be I used to live, I was born and raised in White Plains, New York, and it used to be I could just zip into the Manhattan, and there was always a show going. Now that's not really the case. Actually, up until the pandemic, I used to co-run a monthly show in Manhattan, but now, unfortunately, that hotel is no longer serving the general public. And it was one of the few places that was really affordable to run a show in. So that's gone. But yeah, you know, I've, 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 on average before the pandemic, I was doing probably about thirty-five shows a year.
1: That that's a lot of weekends, right there. I mean, you know, fifty-two that's weekends a, a year. Week. So it's it's pretty much almost every weekend, or eighty percent of them.
0: Yeah. And sometimes I would have to split up. I had some people who worked for me, and I'd say, "Well, I can't be at that show, so I want you taking this stuff to this show, and then I'll, you know, you know, I'll I'll handle this one." So um, that was uh, that was always something because I I am a collector to a degree, so that's how I even got into that. So I figured the way to finance my collecting was to buy and
1: sell as well. I know what that's like. Cause I, I used to um, help a friend do his comic books and stuff like that. And every so often he'd double book a show and I would, he would take the great, like the A group of stuff and I would get like the B group and go to the other, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other convention. Uh, just so because he, you know, he wanted to you know, see how it all went and things like that. And uh, sure, it's sure. always fun. You get to talk to the dealers and, um, that's, I tell people when you go to conventions, talk to the dealers. And if you're buying a lot of stuff, you know, talk to them about, uh, sometimes they'll do those um, bundle deals or whatever. Some of them won't, some of them will. It depends how much they got invested in that particular item.
0: Exactly. And that's where I'm an idiot savant. I can remember almost to the item what I spent on something. Yeah, I couldn't remember what I had for breakfast, but I could remember what I spent on a particular item. And, uh, well, uh, how I even started doing that show is uh, Martin Grahams Jr., who puts that show on. We go way back. When he was really young, uh, he used to do the Friends of Old Time radio. And I was a dealer there. And that's how we first met. And, uh, you know, so I've known Martin for since the 90s, you know. He's a, a really—I mean, not that he's old now, but he just, he's a really young guy. that
1: he's still a young guy. I—I I think of him still being young, but it's—I can imagine he had, to, he had to be like he had to be like just out of high school then.
0: Oh yeah, well, I mean, in, the, in the early shows, he used to show up with his father, and I think his father was the one who was doing the driving and that. So it was a case where you know, and and he stayed on it, and he started doing. The more he learned about it, he started doing other shows that that uh, I did, and I turned him on to some different shows, and then he started coming to those as well. And now he's got his own,
1: and and, and he still goes to shows too. So I mean, he does he does a little oh, bit yeah. of everything, still- and uh, it's just that love he has for all the different genres of um, like old time radio. Movies, TV, books. I mean, it's like everything that you can think of that is a media type thing. He actually really enjoys and relishes and and, and loving the older stuff, the newer stuff and everything in between.
0: Oh yeah. Well, he's also a researcher because he writes books. You know, he writes books on old time television, on old radio shows. So he, um, he does a lot of research. You know, he's very knowledgeable. Certain shows he knows A to Z on.
1: That is true. You don't want to you don't want to, especially like things like Twilight Zone and stuff like that. He knows the ins and the outs of all that.
0: Well, he spent he spent a lot of time gathering all that information, especially on the Twilight Zone book. Uh I mean it's it's the, the seminal, you know, study of uh, Uh, Twilight Zone that's around. I mean, he spent a good year to two years just researching it.
1: Now, speaking of your beginnings, what got Mm -hmm. you started, you know, into going into films and collecting and that kind of stuff? Were there certain things when you were growing up that you just gravitated to that you really enjoy?
0: Yes. I mean, I was always, from the time I was small, I was always a fan of movies. And I particularly love old movies. But when I was growing up, that's what was largely on television, was older movies. And my mother was actually a big movie go-of and and fan of movies. It's amazing because my father, who came from Ireland, was a member of the Abbey Theatre. And uh, he had been an actor at one point. But yet he didn't really care that much about movies or, or that, but my mother was, was a rabbit movie fan, and then I started asking her, you know, I'd watch a movie, i say, who is that? Who is that person in the movie? So I got into that, and then I wanted to go into making movies, which uh, is what I did. I started working crew jobs and, and things like that and there was a lot of work in the tri-state area then then for a while in the 90s and you know it's the late 80s into the 90s it started to it. but now up in this area it's, it's it's really popping again
1: i'll say and what it's when some of those movies that you saw as a lad that that you really loved do you remember like and like one or two that particularly stand out as being like memorable movies to you that were like you really enjoy and still joy till to today?
0: Well, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of movies that I really like. I was also a fan of the old movie serials, which were made from the silent era up until the mid-50s. There were a number of those that I, you know, I've watched probably 20, 30 times. But there's, you know, the, a lot of the Warner Brothers, the early Warner Brothers stuff, You know, one of my favorite um, uh, horror-type movies was uh, The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which is based on the Shirley Jackson novel. But I was always amazed at how scary it was, but yet there was very little in terms of effects in the movie. It was all the way it was lit, the way the scenes were handled and that always that always resonated with me you know and uh so you know it, it just kind of led to me wanting to be in the business in some way and i wanted to learn i went to film school for a while but i was like this is just reading a lot of books and talking about it i wanted to get out there and do it and at one time when i was uh it used to be a magazine. I don't think they do it anymore. It was kind of a newspaper. It was called um, Backstage. And originally what it was was it just told you about theater gigs. But eventually they started putting in stuff about movies and who was doing a movie, who they were looking for, you know. And a lot of times, you know, you get a, a, a small gig as a, uh, working on a crew and so on. And I really talked to people in between to find out, you know, if, if you like the camera people, if they had time and you said, well, why did you do that? Why did you use that? lens? Why was that light? Put there? If they had time, they were more than happy to give you the ins and outs of why they did it. And I was really on the job training. And, um, I always felt you need to know the, not just the the, the what you want to do in terms of actors and scenes, but to know the ins and outs of the technical side, so that you can sort of create what you want uh, and have a little knowledge behind it. So. I always found it very valuable. It was much better than just reading a book about it.
1: And I agree with you. I think a lot of people learn better from doing and talking to those as they're doing it. So you can actually see the practical use of it. And there's other people that learn better from the books and there's those that do both. But it's just when you're, when you're doing it and seeing it done, I think it does have a better uh, way of lasting with you learning those life lessons.
0: Yeah, it does, and and sometimes it pays off. I worked on a movie called The Astrologer, and I started there as a, kind of on the lighting crew. They had a a, a thing where a number of the, the people on the crew left, and um, I'd gotten friendly with the cinematographer of the film, and I'd asked him questions, you know, like why do you why do you want me to put this light up, and so on and so forth camera. And when he lost his second, what they call AC, assistant cameraman, he said, look, he said, you seem to be interested in this. I'm going to make you the second assistant cameraman. And, you know, this way you can get more training on it. And I enjoyed the hell out of it. And we were shooting Panavision, which today people probably don't even remember Panavision, but that was like the A-list of cameras that you used back in the day.
1: It's nothing like getting your feet wet right with the big stuff, you know, the best the best equipment at that time. Right.
0: <laughs> well, I even got a course because they had to close down for a few days till they reclued. I got a, a crash course down at General Camera, which handled Panavision, and I actually, you know, were being shown all the ins and outs of the Panavision and it was a lot of fun.
1: It sounds like, especially when you're interested in that, and I, I find it interesting because back in the day, everything was filmed in film. Now it's rarity that things are filmed in film. Oh, it's all digital. Yeah.
0: It's all digital now. Even when they they you know, hear a certain direct, oh, I'm going to use film. I'm going to shoot. Well, they may shoot the film, but once it's shot, everything from that point on, they don't make a hard print. You know, they they wind up everything goes download to digital,
1: which is good and bad. I mean, it's, I can see the positives and negatives, but it's something nice where something is still done, and you get to see it in film when you go to a revival and they're actually playing the 35 millimeter or whatever. And you're, yeah. I maybe mean, it's because when I grew up playing old films and stuff like that, I had an old you know movie projector and you get to hear the reels and you're getting to see the thing, it it brings back that nostalgia and you can't help, but enjoy it. And as you're eating your popcorn.
0: Oh yeah. Well, at one time I owned something like 1800 16 millimeter prints, you know? So yeah, I, uh, uh, and I belonged to a few clubs at the time in the sixties and seventies where we've run actual 16-millimeter prints and so on. It is different. You know, it it is different. I mean, I understand, actually, for if you're doing a low-budget film, it's much cheaper on digital than it would be with film. Uh, You know, there's a lot of cost because you're not, you know, you're not... um, You have to run the film, but you're also running, well the sound recording and then at one time you used to have to take all the sound put it on a uh, mag track and then sync it up here you get the whole thing and it's it's right there you just download it
1: and another advantage of the digital of course is people are able to get the results of what they filmed almost instantaneously so they can see yeah. it running out of, oh we need the pickup shot we need to redo that and we're back in the day when film—you wouldn't know until the next day at best. That, you know when. Well, when- you just have to re- rely
0: on your continuity person, or that the operator who generally runs the camera uh, actually takes the shot has really seen what's going on. And in the old days, they didn't have the cameras. You didn't have that you could actually see through the lens you would do that to set up the shot and then you have a parallax viewer on the side of the camera that's supposed to be lined up with what the lens is seeing. But in some cases, it's off a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you don't see that there's a crew guy holding something just off camera. You think it's off camera and it's not. Or a light is in a shot. So um, it does. It gives you the the image right then and there and you can see if you want to reshoot it or just take an extra safety or something like that
1: yeah especially when going back to the the small independent projects and then you have so much money you can spend on film and yes and then you got to take into fact, okay now it's a day or two later we're finding this out do we want to have everybody go back to that area and reshoot it, but then you might not be able to go back to that area. It might have been you only had it for that one day, and then you just have to find a way to edit around it or live with it.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. You can view it right away and and, and make sure. You know, I mean, all the, the bigger films, all well, the films that I actually shot, directed not they were all at a time when you know, you, you had a shoot on film, and you couldn't see it right away. There was no video taps were only coming in and even then they weren't quite as accurate as it is today so you know you think okay this looks okay but but in most cases it, it was a lot more expensive to have a video tap
1: you were able to do something I think any horror film fan I, I'm, a, I'm i'm a general film fan I love all films but any mm-hmm. I would have I would have loved to have done been able to do this be a zombie for a george romero film and of course of all the, the films i mean dawn of the dead the 1978 classic i mean if, if you had to choose between a, a zombie film it's either that or night of the living dead you know you want to be one of those two seminal horror film moments and you got to be a zombie
0: yeah and i got to you know hang out with, with george and uh some of the crew, and we did, we helped a bit uh, other ways. Because one time when we were there, now when we were shooting Dawn of the Dead, uh, we were shooting it at the Monroeville Mall. And Frank Pharrell, who also, you know, is a filmmaker and worked on, you know, Dawn and he worked on uh, Spookies and, you know, with me we drove there in a blizzard there was a blizzard going on When we got there it was still snow and they put us up in a motel across the street from the mall and uh you know so i think it was saturday morning george said to us he says you know we're going to need extra film and he says the guy left it back at the office in, in, in Pittsburgh. So since we weren't going to be on for a few hours, Frank and I actually drove to his his offices to pick up film so they would have enough for the evening when we started shooting. But um, that, that was a lot of fun outside of the fact that you know, people don't realize because the exterior shots were shot at a different time. So, but it was, it was a major blizzard going on, you know, when we got there. And it went on for, I think, into the the next day. And luckily they got things cleaned up that you could move around. But, you know, there was, there was some touch and go moments there with the weather.
1: What was, Mr. Romero-like, because I never had the chance to meet him, you know, and so it's... He's a very nice guy. He
0: was a, a very good... There was nothing like, I'm the director here, and you should, you know, he could go up, you could talk to him. At the same time, they were shooting... Uh, that's how we even found out there was some openings. They were shooting um, the Document of the Day, which is the... They were going to do the uh, documentary on uh on the the movie and so you know he was very he was very laid back knew what he wanted i mean he was like move move and his crew moved like lightning you know was like okay let's set up for the next thing unfortunately there's some of the things i wish had been in the movie that have never wound up in any of the versions i've seen There's a scene where he's dressed up as like Santa Claus and on a motorcycle and driving through the mall. And there's a girl, I think it's, and I don't quite remember, I think that's the girl who became his wife. She's dressed as an elf carrying a Santa bag. And... He's yelling, ho, ho, ho! And is driving by the whacking the zombies with the the, <laughs> the bags. And I'm one of the zombies who gets whacked, but it never wound up in the film. And I don't think it's in any of the other cuts. I mean, there's so many cuts of that movie. and uh, it, But he was an incredibly nice guy, but he was like he was on it. I mean, you know, he wasn't like sitting around and well, I got to think about this. You know, he was he was prepared. He was very
1: prepared. I'm I'm wishing that that part you just brought up would be like one of those de- deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. You know, that that would, well, that would be cool. All, all the
0: footage. They're always finding footage. There's um, there's an English company Arrow, which was originally interested in our spooky film, but then Vinegar Syndrome got it that said that they were able to find stuff that hadn't been in any of the cuts. But I've never seen their cut of it. But I've seen like three or four different cuts of the movie. And I haven't seen that in there. It, it, it probably just didn't work with the flow of things. But, uh, you know, and also, my other contact with that was on Day of the Dead, because we were doing the movie Spookies. And from what I remember, there was some problem with their financing. And they contacted us and said, listen, we need to keep working on some of these effects things, but we're kind of closed down here. And they wanted to make up all these bodies for a scene, you know, dead bodies and they said you know could we cuz we were shooting on a estate and we had this huge well i guess it was originally kind of like a like a kitchen but it was enormous this was the john j junior estate we had a big place set up so uh, gabe bartalas who was our uh, head makeup guy he he knew Savini, and I think it was Savini who originally called and asked him about it. And so they had gotten the moles from a movie called Gorky Park. Mm-hmm. And they were body moles. So they wanted to make them up at our facility. So they, some of the guys came up. And they brought the molds, and you know, I said, "Fine, as long as it doesn't interfere with the work you're doing for this picture." And they were making these bodies, and it was that kind of almost flesh-looking foam. Uh, And they would take them when they got to a certain point, and they put them outside on the grass to fully cure, and you know. And there was a woman that called, and she said, "I'm from a historical society." I'd like to shoot now that I hear that the mansion's open. I'd like to come up and shoot some stuff. up. So I said, "Listen, we're 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 very busy at the moment, you know. I'll, we'll take your number and we'll call you on it." So, I was shooting in one room, and Tom Dorn, who co-directed with me, was was setting up in another room. All of a sudden, in the middle of, of the scene, I was doing. I start hearing screaming, I'm like, Why is he doing this, he knows I'm shooting. I walk out into the foyer, and Tom is coming out, and he goes, what's all the screaming about? And I said, I thought it was you, you were setting up. He said, no, and then we realized it was outside. We run outside, there's a woman with a camera, she's taking pictures and screaming the whole time, and she's taking pictures of the body. And she sees us and a bunch of the crew guys, she screams, jumps in her car and takes off. We're like, what the hell was that? Well, later, one of the cops, some of the cops used to come up and hang out uh, at night. And she was like, let me tell you what happened this afternoon. A woman came into the police department and said that there's a bunch of mass murderers up at this estate, there's bodies all over the place. <laughs> And she was not happy when we all started laughing at her. We told her, you know, they're making a movie up there. There's no real dead bodies. So (laughs) I think we made somebody's day, you know. But we wound up, and then we were closed for about a week. We closed down because there was something we were preparing. And a bunch of our crew guys went down with the bodies, that wound up in Day of the Dead, so there's this slight connection to Day of the Dead.
1: i, I was just picture her driving up and seeing all these bodies. They're like, you know, it, it's it's almost like uh, people uh, nowadays that pull their phones out and start taking video of the whole thing and be like, ah, she'd probably be she'd probably be on TikTok right now if it was happening today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all these bodies. I mean, look at all these <laughs> murderers. Here they're coming to get me. <laughs>
0: I mean, you think the you know, like, yes, we're mass murderers and we just them up outside With what because we like the memory of, of the bodies why would we do that
1: <laughs> it almost sounds like a, a like a plot to a movie you know <laughs> except you were, you're, 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 your cover is you're filming a movie but really you're killing the people and then the police make it, it's all a movie and really there are really dead bodies
0: hey that's a great deep plot. <laughs>
1: and we should give her credit for it, if we ever, you know. That, oh, you know
0: I don't know. Did she never called to, to find out about, oh, gee, I know I did this, but could I still come up and take a look at the mansion? and never
1: heard of it. You I don't know. think she ever wanted to come up and see the mansion again after that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I not enough. I'm
1: surprised. See, now today, those photos
0: would have been up on the Internet, like one, two, three. We would have had great publicity, except we didn't want publicity. We didn't want people, you know, coming up because we it was, a, you know, it was a fairly big estate. I mean, nobody lived there. A church had, had owned it for a while. And actually, when we got it, it was owned by some big lawyer from Columbia Pictures who really wanted to tear down the whole thing and put up like condos which never
1: happened. Thank God. From what I, from what I read, your movie basically saved the Jay estate because they were hoping that you would destroy the house even more. And then they can, cause it was already something they wanted to get condemned. And as you said, destroy and yeah. reuse the property. But is it true that you guys fixed the electricity and the plumbing? So it, you guys can utilize it for when you're doing your movie.
0: Oh yeah, we, we had to have we had to have the plumbing, because to save money, there was a big carriage house, and that's where we had our offices. And upstairs, there were rooms, and some of the cast and crew would stay up there, and then some of the cast and crew stayed in the mansion, you know, in the mansion itself, in rooms we weren't using. Uh, Matter of fact, for a week, because I I was shooting so late, I stayed there, even though I lived about maybe 15 minutes from it. I just would be so tired that I got to get up at like six in the morning. I'll just stay here. And we did. We fixed that. And um, well, the weird thing was when we when we came there, we needed to get the power turned on on this wall was a huge, like like out of Bride of Frankenstein, big throw switch. And Tom Dorn said to me, he said, well, maybe that's it. I said, that, that thing's ancient. I said, that's not going to do it. So the person from Con Edison came over, and he's trying all these things, no power, no power. And eventually he said, well, maybe that big switch is the power and he goes no that wouldn't be he says well I'll throw it just to see through it all the lights came on and we did we had some rewiring done and um, that place needed a lot of plumbing because when people stayed there they started to take showers next thing you started seeing water dripping from pipes and so on you know and uh, there was a pool there uh, there was a, a like a separate house that was like the gatekeeper's cottage that somebody who was renting at the time and there was a pool the only trouble was they filled up the pool but in the place where there was a lot of the electrical work there was a leak and so the pool water was leaking in it, and I remember I had to, because it was a switch out there, we found out, I had to go out and I'm walking through the water and I can feel the electricity kind of going through me a little bit to knock this switch off. Otherwise, it would have come up and hit some of the main things. And... But it also brought it to attention that things should be done with it. The only thing I hate that they did now there was a huge tree out front they cut down. Maybe it was dying or something, but it was pretty healthy when he was there. You know, it, it's good that they they, they saved that place. Well, they used to evidently have, have a plaque for spookies up there, but they took it down. You know, and they did a documentary on spookies, but um, they didn't even want them in there. They said, Oh no, you can't walk around. So they shot a couple of things outside, standing outside.
1: Well, that's a shame because like I said, from what I read without your movie, the place wouldn't be there anymore because you, you um, upgraded it enough to where the historical society came in and said, Oh no, you can't tear it down. And then, you know, the rest is history. So your movie saved that structure and it's kind of sad that they wouldn't let the documentary go in because without them, without you, there would be no house.
0: Well, at one point, uh, uh, the wife of this lawyer said, she said, well, what happens at the end of this movie? Well, originally the end was supposed to be that the house starts to glow and like disappears. And she said, well, why don't you just burn it down? Uh, Like, well, you know, that that could look. He says, Why don't you just burn it down? And I'm like, "Uh, No, no, we're not going to burn it down. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: you could tell what they were hoping for. They're like, Maybe they could just burn it down.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that way there'd be nothing to do. Well, you see, the property went all the way out to the sound. I mean, you know, choice property. I mean, Back in the day there, well even now, maybe, you could have probably made a lot of money if you did like, you know, fancy townhouses of that all the way to the water. And in those days, we never shot there, but we found out um there was actually like a cave, which when they shot that junk for that other version of it, it's Eugenia Joseph's. The cave actually was there to bring ice in. They'd bring in huge things on ships and move the ice into the caves, and then put like fans on them so that you could kind of air condition your house. Although that house was so thick and so much, even in in the middle of summer, it didn't feel hot in there.
1: That's kind. Of, that's kind of interesting how people used natural things to help um, get the, get whatever solace they wanted from the heat. But you said that the way the house was built, it didn't seem to get that hot. So, I mean, it kind of makes you wonder. Yeah, well,
0: I, it probably was something, I mean, during, uh, you know, maybe certain hot times or something like that, they figured, well, we want to be really cool, you know, because they had all these vents throughout the house and but we never actually shot down there. But we knew it was there.
1: So we talked about the location. But one thing: what was the um, the reason for Twisted Souls, or which eventually became Spookies, to come about? What was who you know? What was the idea, and, and, and going along with that?
0: Well, <laughs> it's it kind of involved um, myself, Tom Dorn, and Frank Farrell We had done a script called, uh, we had written a script called For and we actually shot uh, a portion of a trailer for it we were trying to get somebody interested in financing it. Uh, an editor that we knew uh, Constance Rogers who's in Killer Dead, the other movie she was also a professional um, editor and She called me one day and she said, well, there's been somebody who came down to the editing facility looking to see if they could buy any movies. Was there any low-budget horror movies being done there? And she said, well, no, but I know somebody who's involved in trying to raise money on one. And Michael Lee, who... Ultimately, was the executive producer uh, had called me and said, "Oh, I'm I'm maybe interested in your script. You know, what kind of budget are you looking for?" And I told him, and he says, uh, "Well, do you have any footage?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "We haven't edited it together, but there is some footage on it." And he says, well, could you come down? He says, I'm staying in Manhattan for a few days. Could you come down and show me what you have and give me a copy of the script? So, you know, I talked to Tom and Frank about it, and Frank actually came down with me. So here we are, we parked, lugging a big projector, a screen, and a can of film of what we had. Uh, we all decided we weren't going to give him the script. We gave him a synopsis of the story. So we um, went there. He found a meeting room that we could set up in. We showed him the footage we had. We gave him the synopsis. And he said, oh, we read the synopsis. There it was only about two, four pages. He said, this sounds interesting. Uh and the story did take place largely at an old house. And he says, uh, you know, well, I'll be in touch with you. And then we never heard anything, you know, weeks went by, like a month or so went by. Suddenly he calls me out of the blue. And he says, well, I'm going to be back in the States. You know, and I, oh, no, what he said to me was, he said, I'm interested, I'm very interested, but I want to see the whole script. So he says, can you send it to me? He says, because in about another month or so, I'll be coming to the States again. So I said, okay. And I talked it over with Tom and Frank, and he said, yeah, send it to him. You know. So I sent him a copy of the script, and then I don't hear anything. And he wanted it right away, and in those days it was expensive sending it. You know, overnight to England and I wound up thinking well you know this, this guy is full of crap you know we're never good. so then he calls me and he says I'm coming over um, he says well you people live in Westchester do you know a hotel could you set up a, a room and I'll, I'll be there and I said well we can set it up we'll let you know which hotel it is. So we set it up and we had a meeting with him and he had this other person with him named Terry Marcel. Now if you look up on IMDb, Terry Marcel produced a number of things he was an assistant director and he was genuine and he was a really nice guy. And he says well Terry and I have been working on a project and it isn't finished. And we're interested in your script. But we need to get this film finished first. And I, I believe the title or the working title was The Anger. And he said, we, we need to finish it. you want us to go to England? He said, no, no, no. We'll we finish it here. So how are you going to finish it here? You know, well, we'll bring over the actors. So actually what happened was he um, he said that he would pay for Tom Dorn to come over, look at the footage, and then he, he would let us know whether we wanted to go on with him or not. Well, Tom went over to England. He called us. He said, there's nothing here. Now, this was shot in 35, this, this film. He said, there's nothing here. There's like 30 tapes of things. There's little bits of scenes. He said, there's actually a little bit that's been cut together and put on tape. It sound.' But he said, I think there's no more than maybe 10, 15 minutes of this picture here. And he says, I, I don't think we should get waste our time with this. So he told uh, Michael that we weren't really that interested, and then Michael says, "Well, you know, I'll think about the other thing." Then he says, "Well, maybe you all should look at it." So he sent the footage over, and I lived in an apartment at the time. And one day, I get ring at the door, open it, the guy says, "I got a delivery of some film for you." Well, did he have film? <laughs> I just opened up a library, Can, boxes, cans, cans, more cans, cans of coffee cans, and I was like, "Holy crap! There's enough here for like three feature films." And we set up something where we started watching some of the footage, and we saw the little tape thing that they had put together on it. And we came to the same decision that Tom did: there's just nothing here. There's I remember there was like, now, 35-millimeter film, you have two cans, you know, that worked out to about almost 10 minutes of a guy running down a path, hooking a right, going up to a tree, cut. And this goes on for 10 minutes, the same take over and over. Over. you know the. it was about a house that was possessed not a spirit necessarily possessed but the whole house was possessed it was this big head that was in a wall and had a big flapping mouth and it was just uh, even though Jennifer Aspinall who later worked on Spooky worked on that there just wasn't anything there. So we turned around and we said, well, this is going to kill it. He we said, we're not interested. So Michael said, well, could you deliver the footage to somebody for me? And I was like, well, it doesn't bother. I had a big car in those days, but I said, who do you want to be? He says, Andy Milligan. Now, you know who Andy Milligan is. Yes, I did. He, he was the king of the no budget pictures. You know, the werewolves are coming, the rats are here, things like that. Well, he had a building down on 39th Street where he had a theater group. They wanted us, to, He Michael Lee wanted us to deliver it there. So I said, okay, well, every inch of the car, Tom Dorn came down with me, was packed with this film, uh, I was worried that I was going to bottom out, you know, with the weight of this stuff. We get down there and I'm like, well, I'm not carrying this upstairs or anything. You know, somebody's got to come out and take it. Well, the what? Andy wasn't there, but one of the guys who works with him was and they took all the film and we basically said, well, that's it. Andy will say, yeah, I'll, I'll finish this movie up for you. Well, it turned out even Andy Milligan turned it down. <laughs> so, then he came back to us. He says, but I really don't want to make your film. I want you to write me a new film. So he says, but I wanted to be, you know, sent around a house and so on. And so that's when we came up with the idea of Twisted Souls, which was sort of a variation, but we were putting more monsters in it. He said, look, if I like the treatment, then we have a deal. We have a deal. So he liked the treatment. He was never thrilled about the title Twisted Soul, but he he, he at one time turned and said, what about using the name bowel eruptor? And he thought he was joking, and he was like, why would, why would you, what does that got to do with anything? Anyway? You know, you know, something coming up from the earth. And I was like, later on, we realized we really had this anal fixation. It was like weird because we eventually had farting muck But um, we did the treatment. We liked it. We started putting together the script. You know, We made our deal and so on. And we had zombies in the original, you know, in the original idea. But his attorney, uh, whose name was Bond, as a matter of fact, he called one day and I said, "Oh, Bond, James Bond." He was dead silent, like I've heard this before. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can only imagine for the poor guy. You know,
0: <laughs> you know, but he was very English. He said, no, he said, there's problems with the international market, with zombies in certain areas. So change it to something else. So we changed it to the whole idea of, you know, spirits being released from the grave and flying around and so on. And, you know, we went and we shot the picture. And we basically had, except for a couple of effect shots, that needed to be filmed and some of the additional effects being laid in we had the whole movie it was, it was, we didn't have the opening credits or the closing credits but basically the whole movie was there and we had a rough cut of about 2 hours and 20 minutes, now that was before we started our fine cut and so we knew we had to trim stuff and we would have you know but, you know, then we, we um, you know, we started doing our fine cut. And then it was basically that uh, things, it turned out that at one point, well, Tom, Frank, and I, our relationship with Michael Lee had been steadily going downhill because he was a person that, he was struck by genius, he thought. And he'd come up with these ideas and he'd be like, oh, yes, I think we should do this. And he'd be like, no, 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 we do that. I mean, probably the one I've mentioned it a few times was I was setting up in the foyer for a scene and it's first thing in the morning. I haven't had my first cup of coffee. And he comes on and he goes, I've got wonderful news. And, uh, and uh, he goes, I can get a gorilla suit. And I said, so, what, what does that mean? He said, well, we can put it in the movie. There's a gorilla going to fit in the movie? Well, he said, you know, just pop in. You looked things to pop in. And I said, he said, well, I learned I all these things kind of old dark house type pictures had gorillas in it. I said, yeah, in the 1920s and 30s. I said, not now. And I said, it, 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 it doesn't fit in. So I said, look, wait out on the, you know, there was like a little, it uh, wasn't really a porch. It was like a, an inch. Said, wait out there and I'm getting this set up and I'll be out with you in a few minutes. So we went outside, I locked the door, and we went on getting the scene set up. In about 10 minutes, I hear the the knob rattling and a bang on the door. And he says, oh, the door's locked. I said, we're going for a take. I'll talk to you later. Oh, okay. And he left. And I never heard about the gorilla again. But he did wind up getting in the movie because that cat creature is basically his gorilla. It just pops in. So he didn't, in fact, get his gorilla in a different form later on. But there was no need to shoot any of that edition. It was a whole picture there.
1: Yeah, because you had two hours and 20 minutes. And, of course, like you said with editing, you you probably would have had an hour and 40 minute to two-hour movie. I'm guessing, you know, just it's hard to say Yeah, to well, edit it down to.
0: Oh, yeah, you would edit it down and that, you know, not like today where you go into the theater and the, the movies are like three hours long. We knew we, you know, we, but that was the rough cut. We just did a timing on the rough cut, which, you know, was not the final timing, but we wanted to come in like under two hours. But, um, you know, uh, you know, and a lot of the stuff that Eugenia Josephs put out was false. You know, she kept saying, oh, the, the picture wasn't finished. It was only half shot. No, it was completely shot, except for maybe a couple of effects things. And that was, it, it was all there. There was no need to go and shoot all this additional stuff. But you see, he, he found out that in that building, as I was saying before, There was this picture being edited by her that she was editing for somebody. And he was thinking he says, Oh, I'm gonna go and see if she wants to sell it, you know, or does she know who owns it? You know, of course she didn't know who owned it, but and then eventually it became that suddenly she was on the picture. You know, because I I eventually had a, a, a major blowout with him. We were out in the hall. As a matter of fact, people were coming out of other end suites the streets telling us that quit yelling. You know, and it was got down to the point where he said, You're fired. I said, You can't fire me. I quit.
1: Ooh.
0: You know, and uh then Tom stayed on and Frank stayed on and then eventually I don't know if Tom actually. I don't remember if Tom actually just left, or he got fired. Uh, Frank stayed on the periphery, but he was more just trying to keep all the business that had to be finished up in terms of paperwork signed, things you know done, and so on. But he wasn't involved in the editing, so he was able to sort of hang on, and eventually our our editor john donaldson got fired and he, gina Josephs was brought in and the rest is bad
1: history <laughs> I, I watched the movie in, in, in preparing for this interview because i hadn't seen it before and mm-hmm. I, I can pretty much before i looked up people tell me like what the parts were done by you and what parts were done by her i figured mm-hmm. i think i could figure it out because i'm just like some of these scenes, especially as you put with the, um, the cat man, the cat guy, whatever, he's just walking around in the hallway and he's not interacting with really any of the main cast. He's at a door or whatever. And I'm just like, okay, this, this guy was probably brought in and anything with the cat guy has to be stuff that she shot, which was the wraparound story with the, the warlock and the boy. And none of that made any sense. You know, it, it, no. at all. It's, it, it's just like, what what is going on? And I'm assuming they dubbed over what Carol, when she was possessed, was saying, because you had the other guy's voice.
0: Yeah, I, well, yeah, uh, the, the problem was that she just wanted to, I, I think, ingratiate herself and come up with ways that she could, you know, take credit for directing, so she had, oh, no, we can't, you know. And one of my favorite scenes that I directed isn't in the picture at all. At the very beginning of our version, we have Joe Niola, who was in Igor and the Lunatics and also was in Killer Dead that I did. He plays this hobo, Jakey. Now, Jakey talks to himself, and in the third person, you know, oh Jakey, this is a wonderful place to stay for the night. And this is supposed to set up the whole house. He comes to the property and there's all these gravestones in the graveyard and the mansion. He goes in there and things start to happen. He thinks he's going to stay there in the night. And we had um the whole thing set up where we did this elaborate effect sequence, which today they would do it all CGI, but we had to do it, where Jakey hears all these noises and things start falling, and he runs up this circular staircase, and he comes up to the camera. The camera is coming down. We had a steady cam and it's coming down, and just to get to his face, suddenly this big rip, Appears across his face. And we actually had wires on it, like piano wires, and that So of rip it. And it's all in one tape. And Jimmy Muro who became an award winning uh, Steadicam operator, and he was also a director, he did this scene. This was one of his early jobs. And he did this, and it, it, it was very precise. Well, they called up Joe Niola. Eugenia Josephs and her people and said we want you to come back and Joe said why he says I finished my whole thing you know I did everything that was in my contract and they said well we want to add these sequences he said what sequences well we have this Catman character and he's going to become Jakey so when you're talking to Jakey you'll be talking to him and he goes that doesn't make any sense. No, I'm talking to myself. Well, we're going to put him in with you. He says, But am I supposed to be the one who comes into this house and suddenly starts finding what's really weird in this house and so on? And I'm, I'm coming with this Batman. He said, Yeah. He goes, No, I'm too busy. I'm not coming back. I've, I've satisfied my contract. So they just lopped the whole scene
1: out. I know from what I saw, and I could just tell there was like a picture there that could have been one thing, and it was, and you can see where it got compromised. And now I know why the, I guess you call them, the muck monsters were making all this um, um, farting noises because it had it made no sense at all. You know, you have this moment that's supposed to be scary or terrifying, and all you hear is <laughs> all the time. I'm like. What in the world? It's not there for comedy because it doesn't fit with it. it enough. It was a non, it was, it was just totally nonsense.
0: <laughs> well, well, the thing was, as I said, uh, Michael Lee was very anal, And he actually used to walk around and put his finger out and say, Pull my finger. And then he'd fart. Literally, he would fart. And he did it to a number of people, and we kept telling him, you don't do that, don't do that. But it was his idea for the Farting Muckman. And I remember we went to see it in in a theater and it was the first time we had actually seen it. And when that happened, Tom just like cringed. I think if Michael Lee had been sitting there, he would have ripped his head off because he spent like a long time getting that whole scene right we had to bring in dirt that dirt wasn't there that had to be brought in we had to have major tubes set up with liquid outside to pour it in when they break the cast a lot of planning went into that a lot of planning it's it's a shame that that was done to it that that was done to it you know I mean, a lot of people love. Oh, I love that farting mug man. I was like, no, no, it wasn't supposed
1: to be that at all. I, I didn't care for it, and it was just—it just—it—it it, it just changed the whole tone. It made it tonally weird, and it did not fit with what you were attempting to do. It fit with obviously what he wanted to do, which you can tell with the um, the the scenes that were reshot. It kind of fit with that pick. It was. It's like two different movies thrown together, and tonally they don't oh, fit well.
0: Exactly, exactly. I mean, the little kid running around looking like Dennis the Menace—you know, with these cheap fangs—and I mean, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's a shame. Like Maria Bacciuca, who played like the the bride. I mean, you know, none of these actors knew really what was going on in terms of that there was all this background to what was going on. They were just there to do a job. You know, Made because when she walked, came down that trellis, and the reason we found this out was there's a scene where she's coming down a trellis. She actually fell and had to be taken to the hospital. And the reason we found out was they tried to charge the hospital state to our insurance And we said, no, we have nothing to do with that, you know. They tried to put the the, the, uh, charge on on our insurance. You know, I don't hold any animosity towards the actors that are there doing the job, but I I do hold it towards Eugenia Joseph because there was no need for any of that. She could have just gone in, finished the cut, made sure, because it was actually effects, for instance, when you see the reaper and you see like the lights and the glow going, well, that was just what they call the first pass of effect. It was supposed to have more lighting effects and so on. Never done. The thing with the hallway, demon when you see the, the, the fiery thing going down, that was only the first pass. It was supposed to be more to that. It was just, and and there was a great scene at the end where both the character uh, of Megan and the character that Peter Dane played, where we actually did old age makeup. The whole room was lighting up, everything was going on, and they were aging. We had full prosthetics on them. There's one quick shot you can see where you see, uh, you know, prosthetics on them but all of it's gone. And then they they got some doubles to lay down, face down, you know, and be dead. They didn't die. They wound up, you know, reviving and getting their life back. But, you know, it it was just like this whole sequence that was done in this room that took a long time to do. There's only a couple of quick glimpses of it.
1: Yeah, I remember watching that scene, and I thought – because you see her old age effect. I was like, oh, that looks really cool. Because I was like, they're aging. And you saw him age, and he crawled over to the, the body. The skeleton had that vial. Throws the vial, hits the game. And that's the last we see of them. Uh, and I'm thinking, yeah. well, what happened to him?" Now I know what would have happened to him. They would have um, de-aged back to their normal cells. And and, and, yeah. and exca- I guess exca- I guess they were, they were supposed to be the survivors.
0: Yeah, well, the, the, there was also a thing where you've you seen them, they went through different stages of being older to the point where they got really, you know, you know, they went from just having some wrinkles to suddenly really being aged. And that's all gone. That's all gone. And then, sadly, it doesn't seem that any of that footage still exists you know, that it, 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 it may be gone forever because Michael Lee says he has no more footage from the movie. Now, he could just be lying, but I remember back in the day after the picture was over, we get a letter from the lab saying, oh, we're storing all this footage Uh, but the bill hasn't been paid. Now, if you don't pay the bill, and I think it was maybe a couple of grand or something, we're going to have to destroy the footage. So we thought about it. We said, well, maybe we should go and and pay the bill, you know, pull our money and go and and get the footage. Well, our attorney at the time said, no, do not do that that could be looked at as theft, and it could be looked at as grand theft. Uh, he said, because you don't own the film. You're just working on it for hire. You know, you don't own it. And what are you going to do with it, even if you get it? But in hindsight, we probably should have gone down, seen what was there, but instead what we wound up doing is sending the letter on to... Michael Lee's lawyers in America and never heard another word about it. So, you know, and at one point after Tom had, I think it was just before he left or after he left the the production during editing, um, he wanted to take the rough cut, take it over to a lab and at least run a three quarter inch tape master of it. So we would have that. And John Donaldson, who was still working as the editor on it, he was reticent about letting it out. He said, well, we're not stealing it. We're just taking it, going to have it copied and bring it back. Because you you had separate, at that point, there would have been a mag stock for the sound and the picture. And he just said, Michael Lee just has a tendency to pop up at any time. He, said, he suddenly asked, Well, where's the print? What am I going to say? You know, and so he wouldn't. And Tom sadly held a grudge against John for the rest of his life about that. At least we would have had some sort of record of what we had done.
1: Not just a record, but then I could see a Blu ray thing where you got uh, the you know, there, there's always ways where things can be worked out where something could have probably been done to show what was out there. <laughs> well, could
0: yeah, have been. They, could have, they could have taken it and, and really, you know, boosted it to a, like a higher level than would have been on there. Uh, and, you know, you would show the original cut and then show this cut with, you know, which would have some, uh, you know, differences. It's even like with King Kong, when they found all that additional footage, it doesn't really match.
1: Exactly, but at least it's there. <laughs> now, one of the things I enjoyed about Spookies was the creature effects. You know, because I know it's a low budget film, and you know, people were comparing it to different stuff. But I really enjoyed some of the different um, uh, monsters that were in there. Because you had the um, the spider, what lady, type thing, where right. she had, where you had stuff protruding from her body, and uh, you know, and, and it's nice that it's practical effects the uh, the Reaper figure, you know, I, I liked him when it came to light, and there's a lot of more of those. So, who was in charge of that, and how and how'd that go with getting that vision out there?
0: Um, well, initially, uh, Arno Garzulo was the the head of the makeup effects, and uh, you know some of the practical effects. And then we had Al Maglachetti, who was going to do, he worked on some of the effects. He also played a part in the uh, film, but he was going to be involved in some of the other stuff, uh, uh, effects. And Gabe Bartolis, who was just starting out at the time. And um, we had Vincent, uh, and I'm trying to think, um, who else? I mean, there was a few effects people uh, that kind of came in for a, a, a bit and helped out. And Jennifer Aspinall, besides doing the glamour makeup and that, she helped out on a lot of the, uh, the special makeup. And even my wife, Robin, who worked on the uh, on the uh, picture for a while. She helped out in down in the what we used to call the body shop. Mm-hmm. You know, she helped out with some of the stuff on there and some of the touching up of stuff on set. But basically a lot of the stuff, I I did some drawings of things and Tom did a lot of drawing of different ideas for things that could be used. So it was kind of a group effort. In, in getting things, you know, and we wanted our whole point with this was let's make it more monsters per minute than you would see in a normal picture. Uh, a matter of fact, I think it was Cinema Fantastique the magazine pointed that out in one article. They mentioned that uh, you know, there was more monsters per minute, and we want to do that because when we were going to horror movies when we were kids, it was like. You know, either the monster never showed up till the end of the movie, or when it did show up, he was like, really? I used to add to this, for that? You know, uh, so we wanted to really deliver the goods. The one thing I'm upset about is, is um, John Dodds, who worked on the Spider-Woman in, in particular, he was going to do a whole animation sequence with the spider, because he had actually built a model. And that was going to show, you know, the intercut where you'd see the animated spider. And uh, today they use CGI, but, you know, this was actually going to be... Stop motion? You know, miniature. Stop motion, yeah.
1: Oh, oh I love stop motion.
0: <laughs> you know, he was going to do that. And then we went a little, our, our budget was about... I think it was around uh, 250000 And we went, you know, it looked like we were going to be going over a little bit more. And that sort of P.O.'d uh, Michael Lee, even though we weren't, wasn't like, oh yeah, we decided to buy, uh, you know, a Rolls Royce to come and go from the set or something like that, or rent it. The money was all spent on the film. And eventually for his shoot, his reshoot, he probably spent quite a bit of change for the week or two that, that Eugenia Josephs worked on it, but he pulled the plug on the idea of, of John really doing the, you know the stop motion. You know that would have been really good. That would have been really good. You know, also on that was uh, uh, what was it? Tom? What was it? the did the, the, the painting, Robin. Tom Mullinelli, I always forget his last name. Wonderful artist. That whole cave scene, he locked himself. We actually used the main room for that cave. And he locked himself in there because he wanted to do it his way. And he painted almost that entire thing himself. And created and he did some of the painting on some of the creatures in that. He then went on to work for, like, uh, the Metropolitan Opera doing costuming and, and so on. But he was, he did some incredible work with that, building that whole thing. I mean, Tom helped out a bit with the making the wire framing and stuff like that. But once Tom got in there, he really, and Ellie. he did all the painting and everything like that. would lock himself in there so we wouldn't come in and annoy him, you know?
1: (laughs) He learned learned, lock the door so Michael Lee doesn't come in, like you learn,
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's what we should have done with the editing room, not let Michael Lee in there at all, you know, so he couldn't get his flashes of genius uh, and bother us. But, yeah, we we tried to have his very... The one thing I'm always sad about, too, is with the hallway demon sequence. I planned that out very, very carefully. And it was supposed to start where you've seen uh, Anthony's character come out. He speaks. He walks from light to shadow. Complete shadow, shadow. Light to shadow. Light to shadow. Talking the whole time. And then the very last time he walks into the shadow, when he comes out, it's suddenly the, the hallway demon, as we called it. Well, she just cut all the center out of it. And it's just like, oh, here he is. Boom, there's the monster. Because it, it was more where she was like, oh, help me, help me in talking. And you think that he's going to help her. And then, boom, you know, at the very end, you know, suddenly the monster comes out and uh she just cut the whole center out of
1: it i, I, the I, I know exactly the, i know exactly the sequence you're talking about and you know what's going to happen i mean anybody that's a horror fan you know at the end it's going to be the demon you know you know because yeah it's it, it's going to be something along those lines but you'd like to build up of the tension and fault it got there pretty quick in your way it would seem like it would have built it up, built it up, because that's what you want as an audience member. When you're in the theater, you want that tension to build, and then you get the payoff, and then you're like, yeah. and then you get the, when you're in the crowd, you get the little, oh, you know, that. Kind of, even though you know it's coming, you still enjoy the payoff.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And then the other thing John does got to work on was like her face Because That was actually stop motion where her whole face starts going down like that. That was like... So, you know, there was a lot of talent that affects people who were working on that and really putting their time in. You know, it wasn't like a nine-to-fiver. I mean, we would get there around seven, eight in the morning, and we'd be there till midnight. And sometimes it was seven days a week. Sometimes it was we got a day off, you know, six days a week. But, you know, we were working from morning till night. So, you know, it was like probably working at Warner brothers in the early thirties where they would just work until they dropped, you know?
1: Well, if, you're dealing with people that are very creative. They, they have a passion about doing what they're doing. Like one guy, like you said, locking himself in the room so he can get it just right. And, right. and here you're just to think that there would have been a stop motion reveal of, of the, of the spider forming, and being a person who loves stop motion, I'm sure you do too. Ray Harryhausen, Jim Cairnforth, all those yep. great stop motion effects, and you know, those sequences sometimes just just make the movie. Because I mean, like, those are the spots where everybody walks out of the theater remembering, yeah, did you see how they did that and how it, it, it unveils, and even a it might take like thirty seconds, and you but you know they spent like a month doing like a thirty seconds worth of work you know, and that kind of stuff, but it just, yeah, the beauty of it when you see it on the screen.
0: Yeah. Well, that was, that was a thing I remember, especially with the hallway demon. I had set it up and actually had, we had a, um, a gaffer. who was filling in for one of our regular gaffers. I remember I had a big argument with Ken Kelsey was shooting it because I knew lighting. I, you know, I worked on lighting. I knew, and I'm going. No, no, no. I want it to go dead black. I need to put something there, and you know, so I was very particular about how it was going to, you know, keep going from black. I said I don't want any light on the character when they hit the darkness. And the and later on, that gaffer when we were having our dinner break goes, he says, you know. That's the first time I've ever heard a director who actually knew what he was talking about discussing lighting. Generally, it's like, oh, I'm here. Let me just talk to the actors, you know. And I said, well, you know, I know about lighting. And this was very important to the scene working. Also, that that house was actually haunted. Oh, really? It was haunted. Um uh, a matter of fact, a number of us had experiences. And in that particular scene, it's a long hallway. And there's a room off to the left. And when we were setting it up, I said, well, let me stand into the room here. And I can look as as he comes closer, so I'm not blocking him. So I open the door, and the door pushes back on me. Bang. And I'm like, ooh, I thought somebody had come in from the other room, and I had hit them with the door, and they just pressed it against me. I said, oh, I'm sorry, and I opened the door. There's nobody in the room. And the other door, you couldn't have gotten through because there was all the wires set up across it, The lighting, you couldn't have even opened it, and it was locked. And our makeup guy, when he was first going to look at the house, when it wasn't really open to anybody, he comes back and he goes, "Uh, Who's the old lady that lives there? I'm like, What are you talking about, old lady that lives there? You know the one that wears like a like an old style looking white dress. Said, there's nobody up there. That this place hasn't had anybody in it for at least three or four years. She said, well, there's a woman up there. And we never found out who it was, and even my wife wound up like feeling something pressing on her shoulder. And she thought it was somebody behind her. She turns around, there's nobody there. Ken had these dogs, and he wanted to bring them inside. And there was a wine cellar that was down there. We were used it in a couple of things. The dogs would not go down there. And these were trained like attack dogs. They just whimpered and went the other way. They would not go down there. And uh, there was a number of people who had like some strange experiences where they saw things that they said, uh, uh, I I think this place has ghosts in it. And actually, beside us was what they call a conservancy, where all the property was being held by the city of the state. And we noticed when we went to the backyard, there were like circles and triangles kind of in the in the grass because the grass was fine. And we went over to introduce ourselves to the woman in the conservancy and she said, Well, have have any of them come to see you yet? And, hmm. and she pointed straight up. She said, Oh, you'll see them. There's one there's a spacecraft that fly around up here. And I thought, Oh boy, this one's coming. And then we talked to the cops and the cops said, like, "'Yeah, you'll see things like that. We never report it anymore because they want us to come in for breathalyzers." He said, so we just not pretend it doesn't exist. I said, really? <laughs> yeah. He said, we one time had a chase down uh, Route 1 with one of them. He was flying low. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no. He said, there's something around this area. He said there's definitely something weird going on around it. You know. So, you know, it, it had that atmosphere, you
1: know. <laughs> if only the lady who came to take the pictures would have known that it would have been even worse. She would have been like, They're they're abducting humans and they're killing them and they're putting on their shape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, what would be
0: nice is, well, none of the photos we took, but maybe she would have developed those photos and seen like other things shimmering in them other than the rubber bodies.
1: Yet another movie idea or a continuation of the same thing. That would be kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of other movies, you have, you have another movie you've done that I – have not been able to watch prior to this, and that's Killer Dead. And that's because of yes. the, you're telling me before we started recording the rights issues and things like that. So if you want to talk well, about yeah. Killer Dead, I really kind of limited to what I could input with you as questions.
0: <laughs> well, the, the, the thing with it was we sold, well, we had managing it a, a, a company called Double Healers, which wound up going bankrupt. And we never saw a dime from... They only sold some foreign territory. Um, but we never saw a dime from it. And for a while, it was like, oh, you know, this is an asset of that company. It's like, no, it's not an asset. It belongs to us. They were just handling rights. So, you know, it got released overseas in certain markets. As a matter of fact, uh, I think it was Tom Dorn that said he read an article in the Times where they were talking at the time about bootlegging of films, and they said, uh, you know, w- which it was known as non vegetarian zombies. They're here, they're hungry, they don't eat quiche, which I hated that kind of title. They said that that movie was the most bootlegged movie in China, <laughs> you know, but I never saw a, a dime off it. So, um, we're getting it ready to release it here for the first time and sort of we shot a new wraparound for it and uh, you know we're talking to a few people about it but the the interesting thing is for for all those fans of Spookies and that it's a lot of the same people besides me directing Tom Dorn was uh, an associate producer on it the cast is made up Of uh, Peter Dane, who's in, you know, uh, Spookies is in it, Joan Ellen Delaney's in it, Nick Gianta's in it. So there's, uh huh? Yeah. Yeah, Peter Dane's in it. it. And Peter Icillo, God rest his soul, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, He's in it. Mm -hmm. And Anthony Valburo is in it. And Ken, Ken, Ken Kelch um, uh, does the DP work, and, and Pete Lynn worked on it, who worked on Spookies as well. He was another one. He passed away a few years ago. He went on to uh, win two Emmys for documentaries that he worked on. So it's kind of like, it's almost like an unofficial Spookies 2 in a way, because there's a lot of the same people.
1: So it's like a spiritual successor to the, the, the original movie.
0: Yes, yes. And it, it was great because we were all back together again, you know. It kind of reminded me of the old days when, you know, people worked for the same studio and they'd run into a lot of the same people on each picture. Or even to early television where they'd have, like, a lot of the same people from week to week, you know. Even the sporting players.
1: So hopefully, you and I were talking before we start recording. You said it might be out later this year. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be great if it was out in time for Halloween, because obviously that would be
0: the best release. Yeah,
1: but to give the give listeners an idea, what what give us like a Reader's Digest version of what the movie's about, so you can wet their whistle and and can make sure that they're looking out for it.
0: Well, you know, it, it, it's told a little tongue in cheek, but it's. Um, it's basically about this guy who takes a camping tour out. Uh, and the guy who who's having, which is Pete Isillo, he's using it as a ploy because he wants to knock his wife off. Mm-hmm. And he figures that she's going to have a bad accident while they're out on this, this tour. In the interim, too, there's like this escaped convict who's on the run and is out there in the woods these aliens crash land. And what they're going to do is they're, they're going to use the corpses to build sort of an army, you know, because that was originally their mission, but they wound up actually having to crash land. So they have be raising the dead. So now our intrepid campers have to fight off these, um, uh Not only aliens, but they have to fight off zombies. So there's a little something for everybody.
1: <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be really cool, and I'm like I said, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm glad that you're you're calling a killer dead and not the non-vegetarian, not whatever there's zombies.
0: I I don't know why they, they wanted, but they were adamant. They said, "Well, you need to change the title," but I guess they. They weren't that good because they wound up going out of business.
1: And it seems like a lot of the actors that are in both of these movies obviously enjoyed doing the movie with you guys because they were willing to come mm-hmm. back for the second film. Um, when you were when you were casting in that first film, was Michael Lee interfering with the casting in the first film too much or was it mostly what you guys wanted? mostly
0: what we wanted. We actually, we put in a, a, a couple of ads out there and got, <clears throat> I remember we put a couple of ads out there looking for, for actors. I think it was Frank Farrell. He got a appeal a box for it. So he comes back one day and I said, oh, did we get any responses? Did, did we get any responses? And he had like, he picked up he said, this huge box He said, this is all full of headshots. So, uh, you know, the only one that he wouldn't... Constance Rogers, who I said earlier, had been the one who had actually tipped Michael Lee off about us because she was an editor. She was also an actress. She had worked on Igor and the Lunatics with me and Tom and Frank earlier we wanted to cast her in the movie. And he said, no, I don't want her in the movie. And I was like, and Tom was like, I don't understand. You know, why is he? He goes, no, no, she can't be in the movie. He was like, oh, okay. You know, never gave us a reason why, but he didn't want her in the movie. Uh, you know so she wound up in, in Killer Dead uh, also did some editing on Killer Dead as well that's, that's kind of weird uh, uh, yeah I don't but most of the stuff we we had free reign to do you know I mean there were people ahead of time that we were thinking that we were going to use like Joan Ellen because we worked with her on new and um, Peter Dane. Uh, because the one thing you, especially in low budget, you want to do it. You want to feel the people are dependable. Because you're working on tight schedules, you're working on tight budgets, and you don't want to prima donna or find out the person is like, you know, they work for an hour and they oh, I gotta lie down for three days. You know, and you're like, no, we have a lot more to shoot. And I went through that. Uh, I actually did another know the picture Demon, which I've never even edited. It's still all sitting in the can. And there was an actress in there, was a very good actress, but was I sorry I cast her because she was, like, unreliable. And so you want people you feel will be reliable, get along with. And... Uh, I think we had, you know, the, the cast was pretty much that like on spookies, you know, it was all, and, and kill the dead were people that we felt comfortable with and we knew they were going to be there and not causes unnecessary woes, which you don't want that kind of pressure on top of everything else you're trying to do. And, uh, so I think on, on Spookies we really had fairly free reign, and then there was, um, you know, even on Crew. I mean, we we had a this a good crew. There was a couple of people that kind of came and went because they were, you know, they just were not reliable. But you know, we had a pretty good crew. We had a pretty good crew. Uh, Sarah Ray was. Was one of our ADs. She was. She was. She was very good. I had met her on a picture of the astrologer earlier. She was very good. Pete Dillon, who worked as you know in Killer Dead, as an actor as well, uh, because he had done like theater and so on. But he was the second AD, and he was very good. That's that's part of it, to feel comfortable. And with most of the people, we felt comfortable. You know, and they weren't... uh, uh, Charlotte, who um, is the blonde English girl, Mm -hmm. uh, Steely, who did a lot of pictures. If you look at her IMDb, she's in a lot of pictures. Uh, The only thing, the only bad moment we had with her was when I was doing the snake demon. And... She had to get covered in blood and you know we're dealing with it's a puppet yeah we have a pulse floor in there there's puppeteers underneath the floor working there and at the end you know there's stuff in her hair and everything and she just i said okay we will finish. she said we're finished we're not cheating this anymore and she, i said no she started Crying and screaming, <laughs> ran out of the room, and uh, and my, my wife Robin, who was working on it, she had to go up and help clean all the stuff out of her hair. And she said it just was so overwhelming with me. She said I'd never had to eat, uh, work with puppets that were attacking me. <laughs> <laughs> but she was good. She was a good major but. I think it was just a lot of stuff going on that you know she was not used to.
1: Until you do and I guess you can never say what it's like to be attacked by puppets.
0: <laughs> yeah! <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, the the, the the bad version of Jim Henson happening to her. Uh, Vin- Vincent Gristini was involved with some of the puppetry work under there. He's gone on to a lot of other major credits, but it was rough in those days because we had a, a video camera set up and a little monitor underneath but it wasn't slick like it is today so they had to really know exactly where they were and it was a thousand degrees under there you know it was really because they didn't have that much room to work under there yep. you know because we had to make it so it didn't look like the floor was raised so we couldn't Bring it all the way up. You know, we had only bring it up a certain amount, and then create the impression that it was, you know, still the normal floor. So, uh, but you know, Vincent came out of there. I could be sweated more in that one day than he's probably had in his entire life up to that point.
1: it probably came out twenty pounds lighter. You know, because losing all that <laughs> moisture, he's like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a quick slim fast method.
0: Yes, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, though.
1: No, no, definitely not a good thing to do. <laughs> um Do you have time for me to ask you about one other movie? Sure, go right ahead. Because there's one movie you brought up a little bit about, and I, I was saving it in the bullpen if we had time. Igor and the Lunatics. Oh yeah, and you played um con 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 conway. conway. Thank you. I was like. Mind blank. <laughs> you know, the
0: only reason I played that was because the actor we were going to shoot, the actor never showed up. So I became uh, Frank was um, uh, Tom. Doran was directing that day, so it was like, okay, you're Conway. You know,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah that that movie actually. Tom and I became involved in that by accident. Uh, Jody Beard and um, was making a movie and Billy Paralini the two people who were making uh, the film and originally it was uh, Jim Glenn who plays the Reaper uh, he was cast in this movie and he said, these are first-timers. They haven't really done anything. And they're, you know, they've are got a budget. They're not sure. They've got a shooting schedule, uh, they 100% sure. Do you, you want to come up and just sort of you know give them a little bit of your... Because we had done a lot of other work for other people by that time. And just kind of look over the budget and so on. So our whole thing was we were just going to come up, spend the day, and that'll be it. You know Maybe we'd come up for some of the shooting. And uh, basically uh, it became that we said, no, your shooting schedule is cockeyed. You, you can't shoot like this. You're trying to shoot like three, four scenes in a day. That'll never happen. And, you know, you haven't taken this into consideration in your budget. You haven't taken this. Into- so eventually they, they were like, well, could you come up and sort of help out? He said, "Well, we'll see what we can do." And Billy Parolini, I think he had done a short short before that, I think called "Stiff Kitties" or something like that. I'm not, I'm not sure. Anyway, after a, the whole shoot was only supposed to be four weeks, and after about a week or so. Jody contacted us and said, um, you know, I, 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 it seems like he's not getting a lot done here. You know, and, and a lot of it, because the female lead was a Mary Ann Shack. And evidently, I don't know, mutual at the time, but I guess Billy liked her, and he was trying to favor scenes shoot more with her. Um, And she just says, would you look at some of the footage? It just doesn't seem like there's a lot happening here. And Dom and I said, well, the the problem is is your script is, is an interesting idea because it's supposed to be like a cult leader who suddenly starts gaining power in this small town and is going to kind of take the place over. I said, but, you know, you need some more action. You need something to really happen. So she said, Well, look at the footage. And it was a lot of footage of Marianne walking around with the dog and, you know, that she had and walking through the woods and talking. And it was like, Well, it's boring. Now, originally it was called Like Father. Mm. And we said, This title sucks. Like Father. All I could think was the old TV show Father Knows Best, you know, and it was like, that it, and then they wanted to change it to demoniac. And I said, you look at that written and nobody's going to be able to pronounce it. It looks like demoniac. And then it became bloodshed. So eventually we kind of came in, we were helping out with some of the crew, you know, helping to light it and Tom was doing some art design for it and stuff like that. Eventually, she asked us to take over and co-direct and to come up with some scenes with action and so on and so forth. And there was sort of an uneasy truce between Billy and, and us because, you know, we were kind of like usurpers. We were coming in. And so we basically started doing all the more action stuff and the the horror stuff. And Billy was left to like the scene of people walking around for the most part and just sort of hanging with each other. Eventually we we felt that, you know, she was she was gonna put us down as this, you know, additional scene directors, you know, and like or his assistant directors, and he was like, oh, you know, we uh, we directed a lot of this. We got into kind of a tiff with her, and uh, actually, at one point, I took all the footage. <laughs> uh, and it put a, a friend of mine who was doing some of the effects thing put him in a bad place. But eventually, we came to an agreement, and he got." Like, because they pointed out on IMDb one of the weirdest credits, you know, action, horror, that directed by, you know, Tom and I. But we directed a lot of the film. Jody eventually got sort of tired of the whole thing. And I guess Billy came in, took back over, he shot all that nonsense with Benny Hanna, with Igor, because in ours, you know, E- Igor is killed you know the um, it, the last scene in what we did just had uh, Jim Glenn, the TJ Glenn as he's also known as you know sort of standing there like you know he's escaped and he's still on the loose. So that opened it up if they needed wanted to do a sequel or what have you. But then Billy got back into control because I think she just sort of lost interest and, in, you know, put in this whole thing with Marianne, uh you know, being chased by Igor, and Igor was still alive. And actually, I'm the one who named it. He's never referred to, except in Billy's sequence, as Igor. Joe Niola could play some very weird characters. He's even in Killer Dead, he plays this blacked out ex-army guy who runs a bar. But he's the sweetest guy in real life. And he does a lot of theater, producing, directing like local theater up in the area. He's a really nice guy, but he's the type of guy that you, you, you want to approach him the right way. And he had another business at the time. He used to do um, things with real estate in terms of verifying property and, and who owns what and stuff like that. That was, his, you know, that was his real day-to-day gig. So when we would use him, we'd have to make, because originally he's only a minor character in the picture. Very minor character. And we said to him one day, you know, okay, you're not going to be needed tomorrow. Well, for some real weird reason, he got a call that he was to be there at 8 in the morning the next day. So Joe shows up right on time. And Tom and I are looking at each other like, what is he doing here? We're not shooting this stuff. So we went over, we said, you know, you must have been a mistake. And, you know, you're not. And he just kind of like got stony quiet and went, You mean I didn't have to be here? You mean I gave up a day of work? And you're not going to use me now? And it was like, it was like suddenly Peter Lorre was standing there. And afterwards, we kind of looked at each other and go, Wow, that's pretty neat. Why don't we build up his part, you know, and make him this crazed guy? So I used to say sometimes when he'd be waiting off in of the wings, wing, to, bring me an Igor, mm-hmm. you know, and he never was named. But then the movie became Igor and the Lunatic. And Billy actually hasn't say the name Igor at some point. Or somebody says the name Igor, too. But originally, the character had no name at all. It was only a minor, minor character. But Joe was a trooper. You know, he was a trooper. He really liked, you know... When he showed up, he was ready to work. You know, he was ready to work. And some of the stuff he would add, he'd come up and say, well, I think Igor might do this. And we'd go, perfect, Joe. Put it in. You know...
1: You hear about that in so many different films, especially in the olden days, where somebody will come in and they'll be like, "This guy is, is hitting it," or they'll, they'll see him and they'll be like, "They'll see him in some of the scenes," and like, "We got to build the part up." And the next thing you know, this part is being added on and added on, and to give him more days. And it goes from being a um, a cameo to supporting actor, you know, with and, and that kind of thing. And it sounds like that same thing happened to him.
0: Yeah, well, as I said, he's a, a matter of fact, if you, if you watch the movie, there's a scene where the cops are coming in to raid the, um, the, the, this, their compound uh, where the, this cult is. And you see a bunch of people get up and start screaming and running. And one of them is Joe, and he's wearing this weird-looking hat. But that was before there was any of this thing with really the Igor character. And he would just come up with these things. he put that kind of weird little laugh that he would do occasionally. We came up with that, you know? And, uh, you know, he was always... But he always took a few minutes. He goes, I have to become Igor. So always tell me when I'm going to become Igor. He goes, I have to do my preparation, <laughs> you know? And... Uh, so then you would tell him, okay, in about ten minutes we're going to have you, okay? So then he'd start becoming more to Igor, you know, and he, he was terrific in that. He, he was a lot of fun, you know. But again, that movie is, is recut and recut. I have one cut of the movie that uh, Jody gave me on tape when it was called Bloodshed, where there's about fifteen minutes of. Footage from Vietnam, like stock footage, and it's it's supposed to be this statement of war and how it corrupted. And you know, they eventually cut all that out of it. But uh, you know, we left. We only saw the picture once it was like fully finished, and uh, they had a screening of it. And, you know, some of the stuff we, we had was there, and a lot of it was there, but, uh, you know, there was some of the stuff added with Igor at the end, and it was like, why? Because Igor is supposed to have really died. There's a scene where he's kind of moving along, this thing, and he's, like, crawling and that. And that's basically just around the time he actually gets killed fully and finally.
1: I'm just amazed how, when you hear behind the scenes... certain things could have gone one way or the other way and how you have different creative types, sometimes having different visions and some people were like, they, you know, want to go a certain direction, but not realizing that direction could be rudderless. And when you put somebody in there for rudder, then it's, you get those different conflicts that go on. And sometimes it's a matter of um, suppressing your ego and allowing uh, the thing that could realize it could be better. Because, like, a good leader would realize it doesn't have to be your idea. But if your team comes up with something, it's going to end up your name's going to be there at the end and just oh, yeah. work with the team and allow it to generate that way. I think that's the sign of a better leader. And, of course, the director is and co-directors are the leaders of the team. And it's just a shame that, um, in this particular case, there, there seemed to be some of that where he was – not happy because it wasn't totally his vision, but realizing it's a movie never just one person's vision. It's the whole team's vision. Right.
0: Right. Well, one of the funny things that was, that was the only movie I ever felt like God on because we were setting up, uh, it was Jody's grandparents had a farm and that's where we shot a bunch of the end of it. And our normal gaffer was sick. And we had another gaffer come in. And they had to do what they call a tie-in, which is you tie into the power with the main, you know, setup. And then you run all your lighting stuff off of that and, and whatever. So he went in and he tied in. And so we're setting this one scene up out in front of of the barn and getting it all set up. We have our big lights going and everything. The scene comes to an end and I go, cut! And the lights go off all over the neighborhood. He had tied in wrong and blew out the whole thing for the whole area. (laughs) And so it was about an hour that we were sitting in Extreme blackness until they got the power back up, and uh, but it was like, God like cut, and suddenly so all the lights go out everywhere, you know. And we actually had, we were shooting at that same location, and there was a traffic accident right outside, and there was ambulances pulling up and everything like that. So me thinking like a filmmaker, not like a concerned citizen, I said, turn the lights around, get the camera, shoot some of the stuff with the, the the ambulance and the police cars and that. We might need it later. And it does wind up in the film. It does wind up in the film because there's supposed to be this huge massacre at some point And it's like you see the ambulances and the cars. That's all part of a real accident scene right outside. And we had the big 5Ks going, so we just turned them around. Of course, the guy tried to sue uh, Jody later, saying, oh, I was distracted by the lights. Well, he shouldn't have been looking over there, you know, because we were way down at that point. But we wound up getting some nice footage out of it. Nobody was really hurt except the vehicle's.
1: Yeah, you know, and that way you get it's like the old gorilla um, filmmaking style. Oh, there's an yes. opportunity. Let's go for it.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, if you that, so I couldn't let that pass. I was like, nope. We, we gotta see, we've got to see. That'll add a lot of production value. And we have an intercut with the end sequence because we could only afford to rent one police car. <laughs> so <laughs> now we had a whole load of them in the stock, our stock footage.
1: That's when you look up to heaven and you're like, thank you.
0: we'll give you credit at the end
1: (laughs) I'm looking forward to killer dead coming out and uh, Mm -hmm. like I said um, I'll let listeners know let let me know when it comes out and that way I'll let listeners know when it it ran that time frame that hey killer dead is out um, and and that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff so that way they can um, go out there and get it especially if it can come up hopefully before Halloween so that would be one of those great purchases to get, you know, when everyone was looking for a new type of movie here. You get, so it's, it's kind of like old new, you know, like it's, it's, it's an older movie, yeah, exactly. but it's a new product. <laughs> right. Well, we're just finishing up. There's like a few effects
0: things that have to be done on the, the wraparound and a few effects things that I want to add to the, to the film, you know, lay in. So when we get that done, then we'll be ready to, You know, have it released. You know, we've had a few people who are are interested in it. So, uh, because now all of a sudden, films that were done in the 80s are becoming, you know, now I understand because I used to go to these film shows and they'd have these actors from movies in the 30s and 40s. And back then they'd go, why the hell is anybody interested? How how do these people even know we exist? you know, was because suddenly these older movies were being seen again. And these people became suddenly, you know, he said, you know, there's people coming up asking me for an autograph. They weren't even alive when I was doing this. movie."
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's the great thing about movies is that it has that leg, that longevity where people can come up there and see it. And so it gets reintroduced to different generations because the, the father or the mother will say, oh, to their child, let's watch this. And if they enjoy it, then they're going to pass it on to their children and so on, or their friends. And next thing you know, you have this whole little cottage group that's coming up and you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, you guys are all 20 years old. And and this movie came out in 1980 something. And there's no way you could have saw when it came out. But oh, my parents rented that back at the video store and they remember that being good and their parents saw it at the theater. And, you know, it's, it has that whole little multi-generational feel.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing. When uh, Vinegar Syndrome brought the film out, they did like uh, like a like a 2K transfer. They got some of the original 35. Uh, they still didn't do one thing. I told them, I said, you know, When we got the stuff back from the lab, the house was supposed to be blue lit. And when they developed the shortage, they took the blue out. They thought they'd done us a big service. And I said, no, that was supposed to be there. Oh, I thought just the Kelvin was off on the light. And I told them, I said, when you get in the transfer, Don, make sure they put the blue back. They didn't put the blue back. But, uh, you know, they did a very nice transfer, a very nice transfer. It's amazing, when they released the film, Frank, myself, Robin, my wife, who worked on it, um, and uh, Cecilia, who did a lot of wardrobe work and did help make some of the props, who eventually married Tom Dorn, Anthony Valburo, and Nick Giante, we were all invited over the Vinegar Syndrome. And he says, Well, you know, we're releasing it today. So we wanted to see if people would put out a notice that, you know, you can have your copy signed. He said, okay. So we all thought, well, maybe five, 10 people were wondering. Well, there was a line. <laughs> and I was like, Really? And again, some of these people were like, They even know this picture exists, you know? they were like, you know, like in their 20s, you know, they weren't even born when this film was done you know, some of them were saying, oh I love that, I first saw it on USA Network back in the day and it's always been my favorite, And you know, I'm thinking oh, you mustn't watch a lot of pictures but, you know <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, it, it, and it was amazing you know, it was all it was older people but there was a lot of younger people who were you know, they're just like all of a sudden discovering all these 80s horror films and so on, which have been underlooked. You know, everybody's got into the 60s and even the 70s, I guess the 80s, and eventually it be the 90s stuff that they'll start looking into.
1: It's just like when I grew up and everybody was watching Happy Days. It's just, it's, it's <laughs> you can just look at the range as the years, as the decades go by, each decade starts to move up to its own spotlight.
0: Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, and but especially, like, you know, with with older films, it was because, like, in the 50s and and 60s, largely what was on television was films from the 30s and 40s and maybe early 50s. It wasn't like today. Oh, it's in the theater. Two minutes later, you can get it on Netflix or, uh, you know, HBO Max or something. Yep. Uh You know, so it it was sort of gratifying and it was like all of us were looking at each other like, wow, there's a few people there and they had a stairway and there were like people down the stairway waiting to come up to get their copies signed.
1: Well, I'm just happy that they did that and you were able to see how much people appreciate it because... you know, unless you unless you have people coming up to you or talking to you about this stuff, you're kind of in a void. You don't really know how 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 people are still taken to the movie, and then you have to, you actually got to enjoy that the um, the appreciation that you've brought to people with your film.
0: Yeah, well, it was funny too with with Spookies. We went to we, you know, because we never saw a screening of it. You know, because we were kind of on the outs with. Uh, Frank tried to keep in to a degree to find out what was going on, but even he wasn't really privy to a lot of things. But we went to see it at a theater, and when we came out, we were with uh, Tom and I and and Robin and uh, uh, Pete Icillo. And the theater actually had a monitor playing the trailer for the movie outside where the box office was. And a guy walks up, he looks at the thing and he looks he's watching the trailer. It has the Spider Woman sequence. It has Pete. He looks across, he sees Pete standing there, and he's kinda of like, Looking at and Pete goes, Yeah, that's me. And he goes, That's you He goes, Oh, I gotta see this He goes up buys a ticket and goes in. I said, Maybe you should stand out here all day, Pete. My big business is better. <laughs>
1: Well, whatever sells the movie, right? You know, it's like, you never right, know.
0: exactly. Exactly. And actually, it's, I think it's the first or one of the first, uh, actually Sony Pictures released theatrically because they bought the rights for the video, and they're the ones who ran it in the theaters. So we we're actually one of the first Sony Pictures to be released theatrically.
1: That is kind of wild. I mean, that is wild. And it's, it's kind of flabbergasting how much, you know, we get to talk about this stuff. But I want to thank you for spending time with me to go over this. And, and Robin, too, because I know she's been there in the background for putting allowing me to interview you.
0: Well, I'm very thankful that you, I, I, I had this chance, and it was fun.
1: And listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. And please leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com on our Facebook page. And if you go to the mid Nostalgia Convention, you can look for Brendan Faulkner. He'll be there, probably one of his multiple, you know, multiple tables with his different merchandise. You can come up and look at his stuff and talk to him directly about the same stuff I've been talking to him about. So if I missed a question that you, were well, like, why, Steve, why didn't you ask him that question? He'll be right there. You can ask it yourself that's true (laughs) again want to thank um, Mr. Faulkner for joining me and letting me interview him and just go into a deep dive on some of those movies and the background and so on I hope you enjoyed it too I just want to remind everybody again that this September 7th through the 9th 2023 he'll be at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention and again go to Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention.com to learn more information I hope to see you guys there and I hope everybody goes and has a good time and hope everybody has a great day.
0: Bye.